Appreciate all of you being here. Will you stand with me, please? I want to read you a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Jesus, lesson five. What's the greatest question in the world? God bless you. You may be seated. To uh, a natural man or woman, the world's greatest question is not the most interesting one because the reason is simple. They're concerned with flesh and with earth. And uh, we serve a God that's not of this world and not of this earth. Richard Branson is a British billionaire, started out in the music business, created something called Virgin Records. Then he got into the airline business, created Virgin Airlines. He's made a lot of money. He has a special place in the Caribbean called Necker Island. And, uh, but those are not, those are not his, that's not his true love. His true love is something called Virgin Galactic. He was the first to launch his rocket several months ago going into space. Richest man in the world right now is a man by the name of Jeff Bezos. He is the brainchild of Amazon. He, um, he's made a lot of money. I saw this morning he's building the largest sailboat in the world. He's got lots of, lots of dinero, but that's not his true love. His true love is something called Blue Origin. On the 4th of October, his rocket took 90-year-old William Shatner, who some of you will know as Captain Kirk of Star Trek fame, along with Bezos and one other person into low Earth orbit. And though Bezos was not the first, as I'm sure he wanted to beat Richard Branson desperately, he did make sure that his rocket flew 69,000 feet higher than Richard Branson's, even though NASA still won't allow these men to call themselves astronauts because uh, it's about 70 miles above the earth. Very soon, Elon Musk, who's another billionaire, made his first fortune with eBay made his second fortune with the electric car company Tesla. Very soon he will launch his space rocket, SpaceX, into low Earth orbit. All three of these men believe that Mars has to be colonized because um, of the overcrowding of the Earth and the polluting of the planet. The simple truth is that 
These are people that are trying to get folks to heaven without God. The world's greatest question deals solely with matters that apply to God, and they are not of this earth. There are many questions that are significant, like going to a doctor and he asks you, how much do you weigh? What's your uh, blood pressure? How are you feeling? They know better than to ask us those first two questions. How much do you weigh? We all lie. You know, what's your blood pressure? Ah, 120 over 80, I'm sure. Uh, (laughs) They don't ask us those questions because they know um, they can't trust our response. If they went by our word, we just might die in their office right there. (laughs) First question in the Bible is related to the world's greatest question. It actually, of course, came from God himself. When he asked Adam, where are you? Where are you? Do you you really think God is so ignorant that he had no idea what rock or what root ball or what tree they were cowering behind? It's not about geography. God knew where they were geographically. This is is a telling question. This is a self-examination question. Where are you in regards to me? Yesterday we were talking. Yesterday we had dialogue. Yesterday everything was great. Today you want nothing to do with me. Where are you? Why are you not close to me like you were yesterday? Did you ever stop long enough to realize that in your search for God, that God was in fact searching for you as well? Because the Bible said, no man comes unto him unless the Spirit starts drawing. He said, my spirit will not always do that to men, but you seek him while he can be found. And uh, you got the second question in the Bible. Who told you you were naked? He already knew the answer. I think the purpose of the question was to, to open some kind of dialogue Because from that first account in the book of Genesis, it teaches us about the effects of sin. When we should be asking for forgiveness, sin has a tendency to make us want to run and hide from something that we've done. That is the primary reason why many people will not find God. Can you think of the first question that man ever asked God? This was the question. Am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) God was actually trying to save Cain. And he was so busy trying to hide his sin that he sarcastically asked God a very foolish question. This is what it says in the message in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you have leaders there who teach otherwise who refuse the solid words of our master Jesus and this godly instruction, tag them for what they are, ignorant windbags, who infect the air with germs of envy, controversy, bad-mouthing, and suspicious rumors. Some questions are innocent, 
Some questions people will take way too seriously. I read a book years ago called Pros and Cons. It was a book about the Dallas Cowboy football team. They promote themselves as America's team. But the book was about all of the convicts that were in prison that were now playing for the Dallas Cowboys. The pros who were in fact cons and were getting paid to beat up people now for a living. I mentioned that book to a preacher one time at a conference. He grabbed me by the throat, he pushed me against the wall and began to choke me and he said, you can talk about my wife, you can talk about my kids, you can talk about my mama. Don't ever talk about my cowboys. In the sports world, they have something they call the GOAT. It's an acronym. Greatest of all times. I've heard it bantered about recently. Is Tom Brady the GOAT? 45-year-old quarterback, but his numbers are amazing still. Was Tiger Woods better than Jack Nicklaus? Was Bobby Jones better than all of them? Was Muhammad Ali better than Joe Lewis? Was Wayne Gretzky as good as Gordie Howe? Or was John F. Kennedy greater than Abraham Lincoln? Or was Harry Truman greater than Ronald Reagan? These questions will never be settled because the times have passed and the opinions vary. For years, when I teach people Bible studies, I... They'd say something and I could tell they were a little bit uncomfortable with their response. And I said, no, there's no such thing as a dumb question. But that's not accurate. There are dumb questions. And uh, I, I guess I just get upset with people who know just enough Bible to be dangerous. And they want to use and selectively take places out of the scripture to prove their own opinion and disregard the rest of the balance of the word. I remember being in a family, I was just a little boy, just a little boy, and I had a very, very arrogant uncle. And uh, he said, you know, Harry, where's that scripture? The Lord works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And I was so proud of my dad when he said, that's not in the Bible. And I said, of course it's in the Bible. My dad said, no, I don't believe it is. I thought it was in the Bible. Come to find out Harry was right. And my arrogant Uncle Don was still arrogant and ignorant. <laughs> Here's a few foolish questions I found in the Bible. Am I my brother's keeper? That's a dumb question because Cain already knew the answer. And the only reason he was asking that question was to avoid the issue of fratricide. The first murder in the Bible was one brother killing another. That's what he was trying to dodge. Pilate said, what is truth? That's a rhetorical question because he already knew the truth about Jesus. It was dumb because Jesus literally had the power to save him, but he wasn't interested. I studied these Herods. There's four Herods in the Bible. 
Herod Antipas, Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II. The Bible says in the book of Luke that Herod heard John the Baptist and heard him gladly and did many things that John preached. But when John told him, you got your brother's wife, you can't do that. Herod came home that day and usually happy to be coming home from church because John was always yelling at the Pharisees, which Herod hated. And that woman said, why are you so down? What did that preacher tell you to get rid of today? You. (laughs) That's when that old girl made up her mind she was going to get him. Herod Antipas is the guy that saw to it that John the Baptist's head was cut off. Herod the Great could have released Jesus, but because of the political pressure of the crowd, he didn't want his ratings to go down. Herod Agrippa I killed John's brother James, those two boys that Jesus called the sons of thunder. He would have killed the other, but bugs ate him up. Herod Agrippa II had the power to release Paul from prison. But he wanted Paul to pay him a bribe and Paul wouldn't do it. These four Herods had access to the greatest preachers the world has ever known. John the Baptist, Jesus, James and John, and the Apostle Paul. And the best you can get out of them is Agrippa II said, you've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. (laughs) Had the power to save them, but they weren't interested. That's, that, this is as dumb as, as asking a fireman if he has the proper hose while your house is on fire. Or you're out in 10-foot waves and somebody's ready to throw you a life preserver and you say, wait a minute, is that OSHA approved? <laughs> Please remember the truth is a person, not a doctrine. Jesus said, I'm the way and I'm the truth. That's important, ladies and gentlemen. Satan asked the Lord one time, does Job fear you for not? I guess you would expect a dumb devil to ask a dumb question. Did he really think that the only wise God didn't have the foresight to know the character of his own servant? Because Satan has never understood love. He's serving you because of the perks. He's serving you for the per diems. He's serving you for the blessings and the benefits. And the Lord said, no, I'll let you take all them away. He'll still serve me. The Bible said after all of it was said and done, Job would not charge God foolishly. This is what's going to happen in the end. I, I know this country's getting really goofy right now. But man, it's nothing compared to things that are going on in the rest of the world. In Haiti, 17 missionaries were just kidnapped. They're asking a million apiece ransom for each and every one of them from people that don't have that kind of money. They're about to execute them one at a time. I don't worry about being kidnapped today. Horrible things that are going on around this world. But it's what I call the vindication of the Lord in the end. Because in the end, he's going to look at Satan and said, I allowed you to dangle every foolish, carnal, 
lousy, nasty, sordid, wicked thing in front of them and they still chose me. They still chose me. Serpent, what a dumb question. Yea, hath God said. <laughs> According to the book of 1 John, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life. In order to be a major league baseball pitcher, you got to have three good pitchers. Usually a fastball, curveball, slider, some variation of those. Satan has three great pitches. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. You go to Eve. She saw that it was good for food. It appealed to her flesh. It's going to taste good. It was pleasant to the eyes. It appealed to her Visually, you eat this, you'll be smarter than everybody else. It appealed to her vanity. She struck out. These are the same three pitches that Jesus threw at Jesus in Luke chapter four when he was fasting in the wilderness. First, we're gonna deal with that flesh. Why don't you use your power to turn those stones into bread? And he uses the lust of the flesh. Jesus said, man won't live by bread alone. And then he took him and showed, showed him, showed him visually all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you this without a cross. He said, you only serve the Lord thy God. Took him up to the temple, 400 feet high. Jump off. You and I know both. You're going to float to the ground like you got a hang glider strapped to your back. Crowd of fanning and ooing fawns Fans are going to just get around you and say, wow, that was amazing. And who doesn't want to be in the midst of a, a fawning crowd? He appealed to his flesh. He appealed to his vision. He appealed to his vanity. Jesus knocked them all out of the park. Look at John the Baptist. He baptizes Jesus and the voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When he tempts the Lord, what's the first thing he says? If, if you're the son of God, the voice just said I am, but he attacks the word. It's the same thing with Eve. Yea, hath God said, of course he did. He told my husband not to eat this stuff. You eat this, you'll be like God. Consider the source. It didn't work for him. Now he's been demoted and he's in a garden as a panhandler because he's lost his first estate trying to get you to buy the lies that he's peddling. It's a dumb question. Did God really say that? Wasn't this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? What a dumb question. This is a problem. I used to be prostitute. It's called spikenard. It's very, very, very expensive perfume. She used it probably in the past for only her best clients. It's one of the one things she has kept from her former self. But when Mary saw Jesus weary that day, she broke that box. That aroma filled the room. She anointed Jesus with her tears, wiped his dirty old feet with her hair, anointed him with that perfume. Dummy says, hey, we should have saved this and sold it and gave it to the poor. The 
The Bible says in the very next verse, for he was a thief and he kept the bag. Do you understand what that means? Judas Iscariot literally kept the bag when people gave offerings to Jesus. He kept the money. Jesus gave him a chance to overcome what he and Judas both knew was his problem. Read the book of Acts. It said when he hung himself, he was buried in the field that he had bought with the reward of iniquity. People say, oh, that's the 30 pieces of silver. No, no, it can't be. Because Judas threw those 30 pieces of silver back at the feet of the high priest who had paid him off to betray Jesus. So what is the reward of iniquity? I'll tell you what it was. It was Judas stealing from the offering plate. And he's with no less than Jesus himself for over 30 years. And all he has left to show for it is a piece of dirt that ended up becoming his grave. What are you going to have after you've spent your life with Jesus? I sure hope it's more than a few trinkets and a piece of dirt. I hope it's a life-changing experience. Why didn't we sell this and give it to the poor? I want you to know it was not the worshiper that betrayed him. It was the miser. It was the guy so careful about money, not the giver. Then answered Peter and said, we have forsaken all. What shall we have therefore? What a dumb question. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. They're munching on miracle bread and fish. And he said, okay, time for class. Same way that you're eating and ingesting that food right now, it's being distributed through your body to sustain your flesh. I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He wasn't talking about being a cannibal. He was talking about ingesting him, us having Christ in us, the hope of glory that would sustain our spirit just the same way as that food was gonna sustain their body. And they said, come to think of it, I gotta go home. I've never had 5,000 people to lose with one sermon. Jesus loses 5,000 people. He turns around to his disciples and he said, are you gonna leave too? There's the door, go. I'll find another dirty dozen. Pete shoots off his mouth. Where are we going to go now? We left everything to follow you. What are we going to get? We've given up everything. Really? A few measly boats? The lifestyle and pay of a poor fisherman? Calluses on your hand? Spending every day of your life under the sun or in the rain? Boy, you gave up a lot. Did you used to smoke before you found the Lord? You gave up cancer of the lungs, big sacrifice. Did you used to be an alcoholic? You gave up cirrhosis of the liver, huge sacrifice. I know me better than anybody else knows me. I have an addictive personality. I guess everybody does in one way or another. But if I didn't serve the Lord, I'd be multiply divorced. I'd have money, but I'd be miserable. I know me. I gave up nothing to serve Jesus. I hitched my wagon to a star and it's the greatest day of my life. He knew the deal. You're called to be fishers of men. It bugs me when people get in the ministry and then keep whining about what God didn't do for them. You were a poor fisherman in the beginning, dummy. A few nets, a few sad boats. 
It amazes me how many people forget how lousy their life was before they met Jesus and whatever we did have can't compare to what we have in him today. But there are questions that need to be answered. There are some questions it doesn't matter if they'd answered. This is what 2 Timothy said, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strives. Do you really think President Trump had the election stolen from him? Boy, you just ask that and see what happens. I met a man yesterday. I was trying to find some property. I always wanted to have a piece of property of my own that I could hunt on and build a little cabin and have a four-wheeler and a little barn take Ashley out ride and plant my own trees, plant my own garden, plant my own food plots so I wouldn't have to ask somebody else if I could go or worry if I was trespassing on somebody else's property. I always, so I asked a guy yesterday, hey, do you, could I, is there any way I could buy 80 or 100 acres around here anywhere? And he said, oh man, you're looking at a lot of money now. He said, I got 80 acres. I said, how much did you pay for it? He said, well, I paid $29,000 for it first time and $89,000 a second time. And I said, what do you mean the first time and the second time? He said, she left. I said, oh, you had to buy it back from her in the divorce? Yeah, she left. They always ask me, was she any good? He said, she was a good housekeeper. She kept both of them. <laughs> Just sour. So now I understand why she left you, you old reprobate. We forget. But these are questions you need to ask. Lord, who shall abide in that tabernacle? Who's going to dwell on thy holy hill? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom and the knowledge of the holiest understanding. Here's Psalms 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Because wise people have always sought the Lord. And you can always tell when someone's getting close. Because it says, where is he that is born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east. First question in the Old Testament is, where are you? But the first question in the New Testament is, where is he at? They came to where the young child lay. The Bible said they fell down and worshiped, number one. Then they presented their gifts, number two. And then they went home different. That's the principle. That's the policy. That's the format. Thank you for the white envelope. Thank you for tithely. Thank you for your tithing and your offerings. Without a vision, the people perish, and without money, the vision perishes. You gotta have money, it's the world we live in. You go to heaven by faith, but down here they take cash, okay? People talk about cold, hard cash, it's warm and soft, trust me. We're gonna need a boat lover to build the new building, and I'm not worried about that, because it'll be there. God pays for what he orders, in Jesus' name. But I want you, I'm grateful for your faithfulness, not only physically, but financially. But I want you to understand something. Do not come 
to the error in thinking that just because I put that white envelope in the dish, my job is over. That's not the first thing you do. He wants you before he wants your gifts. We need to come and fall down and worship him first. First. Then we can give our gifts. And then we can go home different. Not the same way we came. You might have came depressed, but I want you to go home encouraged. You might have come sick. I want you to go home healed. You might have come with who knows what weight on you. But the Bible said, lay aside every weight and the sin was to easily beset us. That's why Brother Roberts has lost all that weight. That's why we got all these people losing all this weight. I don't want to be a fat preacher. The Bible said Eli was obese. He was so fat, he fell back and broke his neck and died. He was blind. What a horrible preacher. Fat and blind. There was no open vision. Couldn't preach his way out of a Howard Johnson's bathroom. My God, what a horrible church to go to. You read, you read, read, read in the Old Testament. They, they always talk about that, 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 that woman, Samuel's mother. But that's not the way it starts. It starts out, there was a man named Elkanah. There was a man named Elkanah. That's how the chapter begins. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being Hannah? Can you imagine that? She went to the church and prayed. And Eli didn't know the difference between an intercessory prayer and the babblings of a drunkard. The Bible said he marked her mouth. Orthodox rabbis say he smacked her across the face. How dare you come into church drunk? She said, I'm not drunk. I'm a sorrowful spirit. I want a child. This is the very, when God gave her Samuel, she gave him to the temple as a child, which means she trusted her boy to the very hands of the man that slapped her face. His boys, Hophni and Phinehas, used to lie. The Bible said they would be in the courtyard of the temple and they would take women and commit adultery with them. These are the kids that stole the ark in the valley of Ebenezer and that and the, and the, and the, and, 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 and was taken. You got a fat, blind, lousy preacher whose kids are a mess. And she gives him Samuel. That's tough to do. But she would go to to, to, to Elkanah. I don't know if I can do this. I don't want to go to that church. We're not going to that church because of who the preacher is. We're going to that temple because of who Jehovah is. We're not serving a preacher. We're serving God. And God ended up giving them a boy who had everything the priest didn't have. He could see. He wasn't overweight. He was a great prophet and a great preacher. There's a benefit to serving God and not preachers. Don't have preacher religion. Don't let this church be built on a personality. I go to Brother Hoffman's church. Don't ever say that. Don't ever. This is not my church. This is his. I get killed in a car accident today. Two weeks from now, get another preacher and go on. That's a testament to my ministry. To build this thing on the word and on prayer and not let it be personality driven. That's important. That's the way this has to work. Because there are two places in the scripture I want to highlight before we stop the day. One is in the book of 2 Chronicles 9. And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to prove Solomon with hard questions. 
Boy, she came with regal, man, spices, gold, precious stones. Communed with him of all that was in her heart. This is an amazing story. This is Queen of Sheba, which is probably modern day Yemen. We're not talking about getting your sins washed away here. We're not talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. But there's a great scripture in Matthew chapter 12. And it says, the queen of the south shall rise in judgment against this generation. Because she journeyed to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And a greater than Solomon is here. That woman rode 800 miles, not in a Learjet, not in some limo, but on the back of some animal, just jostling around all to get the answer to a riddle. If that woman could go 800 miles to get an answer to a riddle, we ought to be able to drive 10 in a vehicle to get to church. Amen. And the Bible said the queen of the south will rise in judgment against this generation. That the Bible, wouldn't it be something to be standing in front of your God and judgment and all of a sudden a door opens behind you and this woman walks in and you've never seen her in your life. And she's going to look at you and say, you mean to tell me you couldn't drive 10 miles to get your sins washed away, to be filled with the spirit of a great redeemer? Are you telling me you wouldn't go to hear the word of the Lord? I went 800 miles to get an answer to a riddle. But she went to Jerusalem with hard questions. Listen to Acts 15. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised. After the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas, this is, this is stained glass, had no small dissension and disputation with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. <laughs> this is the first fight in the New Testament church. It's over racism. Once Cornelius came into the church in Acts 10, it opened the floodgate and Gentiles poured into the church. Now you're dealing with Antioch and Syria. This is an amazing place. They were not called Christians first in Jerusalem because the Jerusalem church was all Jews. They were called Christians first at Antioch because Antioch in Syria is the first interracial New Testament church. And the thing is thriving and growing. It's one of the reasons God has blessed this church because we've broken the color barrier and we've broken the culture barrier. And there's not gonna be an eight mile in the new Jerusalem. And there ain't gonna be a ghetto in heaven. There won't be any hood there. And we've broken the back of that in this church and we're gonna keep it broke. Because if it ain't broke, break it. Because there's nothing more uglier than racism. And all of a sudden the church in Antioch is thriving. And all of a sudden these men come up and said, Hey, you're not saved just because you got baptized in Jesus' name, got the Holy Ghost. You're going to have to get circumcised. I'm 64 years old, ladies and gentlemen. That's a deal breaker for me. I'm not joining your church if it requires me to get circumcised. So what do they say? Paul and Barnabas fought with them. No small disputation. Buddy, it's heated. So what do they say? Oh, yeah? Well, we're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to go to Jerusalem. So they went to Jerusalem. And James was there. And Peter stood up and he said, gentlemen, I'm the culprit. 
I'm the guy that went to Cornelius' house. If you want to blame anybody, blame me. But you read Acts 15, James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, stood up and said, Simeon, or Simon Peter, has declared how God at the verse did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name and to disagree the words of all of his holy prophets. After this, I will come again and I rebuild the tabernacle of David that has fallen and I will call the residue of men back into this church. What they're saying is that this church is thriving. It's not just because of their doctrine. It's because of they, they, the way they are worshiping. And James gets up and defends Peter and said, Peter's not the one that started this. Every prophet in the Old Testament, over 40 of them prophesied that the day was coming when there was going to be a church that was going to be somebody from every tribe and every tongue and every kindred and every people and every nation. And here's where we are right now. My point is that the Queen of Sheba and these people in Antioch did the very same thing. They went back to Jerusalem to find the answer to their question. There's only one question in the Bible that I don't think it answers. And it goes like this. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his own soul? That's the question my dad asked me when I wanted to leave home. I wanted out of West Virginia because I was smarter than everybody else. They were poor, dumb hillbillies. And I had been, but I intend, had no intention of staying poor or dumb. And I was getting out of there. And I was leaving my family and I didn't want my dad's thumb on my life. And I'll never forget my precious father who lied about his age and went into the military when he was 16 out of guilt because his brother died in the invasion in Europe. Finished his education on a boat in the Pacific to get what we would call a GED or a high school equivalency test. My dad looked at me and said, Harold, I don't have any doubt in my mind that you can accomplish just about anything you set your mind to. But I got one question for you, son. If you gain the whole world. And don't ever forget Satan can give you the whole world. If you lose your soul, Harold. As a father, I will feel like I failed. I'm asking you to take some time and give it to the Lord. I spent a year in Texas. that turned into three. It's turned into how many now? Nineteen seventy-five, forty-six years. I remember. I had no. I wasn't a preacher. I've heard all these people talk about hearing about being called to preach. I never had that experience. I just studied and prayed, and a couple boys were laughing. I went up. What are you laughing about? They said you wouldn't understand. You're not a preacher. I said, look, I'm not a preacher, but I know what kind of magazines you got underneath your Bud's box springs in your room. And I know where you spend Friday nights at the massage parlor. I said, I'm not a preacher, but I can preach better than all you guys put together. And they said, well, we'll see about that. I didn't know it, but they were the committee that asked people to speak at the big church at the Bible school once a month. So guess who was the next speaker that month? Me. 
And God was merciful to me and anointed me. And that was the first time I ever felt the anointing of the Lord. I was scared, completely slapped out of my mind. Just a shy hillbilly boy. I went to one class for six months. And when I went up to ask the teacher a question, he didn't even know my name after six months. But God knew my name. And God took care of me. (laughs) I just... I know me. My life would be a shambles right now. I'd have money. Probably giving a lot of alimony away. Child support payments. So what if you get the whole world? What do you got if you're going to lose your soul? How do you answer that question? We need to go to Jerusalem. Because when there's... A question about your eternal salvation. You got to get it right. When they couldn't settle it at Antioch, they went back to Jerusalem. We serve a God that answers questions. Here's a question in Job 14. If a man die, shall he live again? Here's the answer 1,500 years later in John 11. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, Yet shall he live. Here's what Pharaoh said. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord. But 1400 years later in Acts chapter 5, Saul of Tarsus said, who art thou Lord? And the answer is, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. Here's Psalms 11. If the foundation be destroyed, what can the righteous do? 1125 years later, this is what Paul said. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. We serve a God that doesn't just have wisdom. He is wisdom. He doesn't just have truth. He is truth. The Bible presents a question. It'll, it'll address the answer. Because Jerusalem is the question where the question of salvation of souls is answered. Jerusalem is the geographical headquarters of the world. This is what it says in 2 Kings 21 and 4. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. And the Lord said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. Several months ago, I showed you that if you hover above the city of Jerusalem... There are three valleys, the Tyropian, the Hinnom, and the Kidron. And if you look at them, they form the 21st letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is called Sheen. If you've ever heard the word Yeshua, the sh part comes from the letter Sheen. And when they want to abbreviate God, they just use that letter Sheen. But if you get above Jerusalem and look at those valleys, he didn't just do it. Phonetically, he did it geographically. He imprinted his name on the topography of the city. I'll put, I'll put my name there. No wonder Jesus said, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Because you got to go back to Jerusalem. You don't go to Rome. You, you, you don't go to Palmyra, New York. You, you, you go back to Jerusalem. 
That's why in Isaiah 2, it said, the word of the Lord shall go forth from, from Jerusalem. In Zechariah 14, it talks about living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. That's why Daniel's great prophecy of the water that came out from under the house of the, the door of the house of God. It's the ankles, the knees, the loins. Look, look, look at the book of Acts. Look at the book. What's the first, what's the first miracle in the book of Acts after the Holy Ghost is poured out? Holy Ghost is poured out in Acts 2. Look at Acts chapter 3, how it begins. Peter and John and obviously Luke are going up to the temple to pray and there's a man lying there and the Bible said his ankles were twisted and he said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus, rise. And, 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 and Luke, Luke, Luke is the one, he said immediately, immediately his feet and ankle bones receive strength. Snap, crackle, pop. That dude stands up and went with them into the temple. And everybody's saying, isn't that God? That's, that's the guy with the cigar box of pencils that's been begging for all of these years. And the Bible said he's leaping and dancing and shouting and magnifying God. Why? Because of his ankles. Now go to the next chapter. And the Bible said they're on their knees praying. Now go to the fifth chapter. And there's a great harvest. All of a sudden you're up to the loins where reproduction takes place. And the Bible said a great company of priests believed. Then all of a sudden it gets deeper and they lost the count because that's what Daniel was talking about. It's going to start in Jerusalem, but it'll go to the ankles, to the knees, up to the loins. See, the point is the deeper and the further you go in God, the less of you is going to be seen. And you're going to get out there to where you can't touch bottom. I preached about Noah's Ark for all of my life. But let me tell you something I learned recently about Noah's Ark. It didn't have a sail. It didn't have a rudder. It didn't have a steering wheel. That thing was totally at the behest of God and the current taking it. That's what the church ought to be. This is not about us steering it and us guiding it. It's about, Lord, take us where you will. I want to get out in the current to where I can't touch bottom and be at the will and the whim of the river of God. Oh, Jesus, you want to know what the question is? Man and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? That's the greatest question in the world. Here's the world's greatest answer. Repent. You don't have to be IBM compatible. You don't have to be a nuclear brain surgeon. Are you sorry for the things that you've done that weren't right? Repent before God. I hear people say dumb things like, well, I, I'm going to quit this and I'm going to quit that and, and then I'm going to get saved. That's like saying I'm going to get a bath before I get a shower. I'm going to get straight before I get, listen, if you could get straight without Jesus, you wouldn't have come to Jesus. It's like a sick man. I'm going to get better and then I'm going to the hospital. You don't, you don't get good to get God. You get God before you get any better. Oh, Jesus. Or that dumb, the dumbest of all dumb responses. Holy Ghost won't dwell in an unclean temple. That's like saying janitors don't go into dirty buildings. And need I remind you that the Savior of the world was born in a barn, covered in a stew of manure and mildewed hay, filled with animal hair and mites and ticks and bugs and beetles and cobwebs in the corners and bat guano on the rafters and everything, and I do mean everything, covered in a generous layer of dust. But that's where he was born. The miracle is that he'll come into our dirty lives. That's the miracle. 
Well, Holy Ghost won't dwell in an unclean temple. Not forever, but every temple it comes to in the beginning is unclean. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart he won't despise. You want to feel God? Repent. Well, I just can't repent. Boy, it's been a long time since I've had repent. You'll sense God, he'll show up. He can't despise a contrite heart. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't undo it. You don't even have to try. You can't untake the dope. You can't unsteal the stuff. You can't unlie the lies, but you can repent and start telling the truth. And after you repent, get baptized in the monumental, majestic, marvelous, mighty name of Jesus Christ. But you have to realize what baptism in the name of Jesus does and when it doesn't do. When you're baptized in the name of Jesus, all of your sins that you've committed up to that day are remitted. But baptism in the name of Jesus does not remove the nature of sin. Sin is a manifestation of the nature of sin. Do you remember me teaching you about fruit and root? Remember Jesus, they woke him up and he got on the bow of the boat and they're in a storm. The Bible said he rebuked the wind. It doesn't say rebuke the waves. If you fix the wind, the waves go away. Jesus said the ax is laid to the root of the tree. Get to the root, get to the cause. Forget about the fruit, forget about the effects. Get to the cause. What's the core? Where is this coming from? Listen to me, it's great to repent and be baptized in Jesus' name, but that's not gonna fix the cause. That's not gonna remove your sin nature. You've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He promised if you repent and are baptized in his name, he'll fill you with your spirit. But you first have to find it in your heart to believe the gospel and ask the world's greatest question for yourself. What must I do to be saved? I'm almost done. Peter set the precedent. We call this place First Church. Oh, you want to be ahead of everybody? Yes and no. I like first place as much as the next person. Dale Earnhardt told Dale Earnhardt Jr. before he died. Dale Earnhardt Jr. was so happy. Dad, I got second place. He said, second place is first loser. <laughs> I like to win as much as the next guy. But we didn't call it first church because we wanted to be ahead of the Baptists and everybody else. There is an original church in the book of Acts. The first church. You ever heard of a phrase called stare decisis? It's a Latin phrase. Lawyers use it. Ever go into a lawyer's office, see all them books? Them books never end. They used to have something called the Encyclopedia Britannica. It used to cost thousands of dollars. I got an entire set of Encyclopedia Britannicas in my office back there. I've never, to my knowledge, opened one of them. But I bought them for 50 bucks. I'm talking about the leather-bound edition with the gilded edges. 50 bucks. Used to cost five grand for that. I bought them for 50 bucks. But Encyclopedia Britannica would always send you this letter. Well, we, you need to buy the volume that takes into account what happened this last year because your, your encyclopedias don't have what happened this last year. So you got an addendum and another and another and another one the annual for this year and the annual. It's the way it is in a lawyer's office. 
Them books never end. You know why? Those are court cases that show how juries rendered verdicts either against or for. And so there's this phrase, stare decisis. It means how did they rule in the beginning? And when someone's going to defend you, he's going to go through them books and he's going to find cases identical or very similar to your case and say, Judge, this is how that jury ruled on this very same situation years ago. And the concept of stare decisis says it set a precedent. That's what you've got to do with the Bible. I want to know how they ruled in the beginning. Did they baptize then? Were people filled with the Holy Spirit? Did they speak with tongues? Did they pray for the sick? Did they believe in healing? Did they believe in the mighty God in Christ? I want to know what they did in that first church. Because Peter set the pattern. Peter is the first preacher. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you'll be filled with the Holy Ghost. Peter preached it and set the precedent that was followed by everybody else. Here's Acts chapter 8. Therefore they were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word. 8 and 12. When, Phil, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. 8 and 15. Who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Watch. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, which means nobody in Samaria had been filled with the Holy Spirit yet, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you could have asked him, what are you doing? He would say, we were following the precedent that Simon Peter already set in Jerusalem. See, the question's already already been asked. What must we do to be saved? The question's been settled, that the answer remains the same. Look, here's 8 and 36. They went on their way and came unto a certain water. This is Philip in the eunuch. He's in this great revival in Samaria. And the Lord takes him away from the revival and puts him out in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, some guy come riding a chariot, reading Isaiah. He was wounded for transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless somebody explained this to me? Philip explained to the eunuch that it was a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. They went on their way, came unto certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Let me give you a stupid question that I've been asked so many times. We don't know how Philip baptized the eunuch. Really? I know Philip has been in Samaria and baptized an entire city in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you think Philip's going to do anything less in the country than he's just done in an entire city? 16 and 30, sirs, what must we do to be saved? The answer was the same with Paul as it had been with Peter. I'm never going to be able to settle the question, who's the greatest fighter and who's the greatest home run hitter? But I can tell you who the savior of the world is. And I can tell you what the answer to the greatest question is. Ladies and gentlemen, in July, in July, I was, whatever, sentimental, I guess. It's been three months since my daddy died. 
in July of 2011. My dad woke me up before the sun came up. We were fishing in Canada and he said, we're gonna go fishing together, just you and me. Usually I went with Jeff Woodworth, daddy usually went with Bob Lickle. But he said, no, we're gonna go fishing together, just you and me. Boy, was I so glad that I spent that day with my dad. It's foggy like it was this morning. I got him in the boat, I'm untying the boat, getting ready to start the motor, and all of a sudden my dad said, I had an amazing dream last night, Harold. My dad never said stuff like that. He wasn't one of these voodoo guys, and he, he, he's very, very, very careful with his words, and I had a dream last night. He said, I had a dream that Susan Elliott married Douglas Osman. That doesn't mean much to you. They're watching me now. Susan's husband died young. He didn't, he wasn't prepared. No life insurance, left her just with a mountain of debt and some children to take care of. It was a bad situation. My cousin Douglas had a wonderful wife, but she had a heart condition. She died early. He was a great guy. My dad told me when I go home, the first thing I do when I go home, I'm gonna call Douglas and tell him to call Susan and ask her out on a date. And sure enough, we got home on Friday and Saturday, my dad called Douglas. Said, Douglas, I want you to call this number. This is Susan. She lives in Texas. I want you to call her. I want you to fly her up here and take her out on a date. Okay, Uncle Harry. <laughs> that was July. In September of 2011, they got married. This past month, they just celebrated their 10th wedding anniversary. Congratulations, Susan and Douglas. I know you're watching and I love you. I was preaching at a conference in Chicago. Made a relationship with a wonderful pastor named Bob Betcher. He had all these big deer in his house. I said, where did you get all these deer? He said, right there in the backyard. Would you like to come? Yeah, yeah. So I went hunting with Bob Betcher in the suburbs. I mean, in a subdivision. That's where we hunted because he had permission to hunt behind the neighbor's house and there, there was deer everywhere. And the only, the only natural predator they had was cars and, and big deer everywhere. The biggest deer I've ever shot so far with a bow. I got it in Chicago because of Bob Betcher's kindness to me. We were sitting there one day and I said, you know what, I think it'd be a good deal. Why don't I bring our youth group out here with your youth group and we'll do a joint youth service together. He said, yeah, yeah. That'd be a great idea. So we loaded up a bunch of our kids and we went to Chicago and there was this great kid there by the name of Stephen Rodriguez and Emily Redcap was there. And when Stephen saw Emily, it's like they say in tennis, game, set, match. It's over. She was off the market. They're sitting in Texas right now on go with four little kids ready to go back to the missions field. My point is, if God would use men to bring Susan and Douglas together and Stephen and Emily together for a wedding, don't you think it's possible that God could send you an apostolic preacher right now to give you an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb? 
Don't you think it's possible that today, amen, will you stand with me? Will you stand with me? Come with me around this altar. I won't embarrass you, just come with me around this altar. Forget about the COVID thing, okay? Just, we do not serve a God that practices social distancing. Thank God. He's not gonna stay six feet away from us right now. He's gonna come near to us right now. In the name of Jesus. Greatest question in the world, ladies and gentlemen, is what must I do to be saved? The answer is repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you'll be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. So we're gonna begin it today. We're gonna to pray a prayer of repentance. Every one of us, every one of us, we're gonna pray. Close your eyes and pray with me. Lord Jesus, saint and sinner, have and have not. We're all, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none good, no, not one. I am here today, Lord, with my brothers and sisters to repent. I ask you humbly, Lord, to forgive me. I'm asking you to forgive me, Lord. There are words that have come out of my mouth that are so far beneath the dignity of someone who would even dare to call themselves a child of God. And the reason those words came out of my mouth is because I thought of them when I was alone. And the meditations of my heart became the words of my mouth and they were not acceptable in your sight. I thought about it alone, I said it in public. Amen, I've mused and meditated about people while I was by myself, I said it in public. I've thought thoughts, I've said words, I've done things that I thought about and I just didn't think about them. I said them and I did them. I went where I shouldn't have gone. My hands have handled things I should have never touched. My eyes have looked at things I should have never looked. My ears have heard stuff. But I'm sorry if you were standing right there with me, and you were, but Lord, if I would for a moment realize you were standing right there with me when I heard what I heard, I saw what I saw, I would have been so ashamed. I want to live that way, Lord, in my future. I, from this day forward, I want to live with an understanding that you are with me every step of the way. Father, you are my shepherd, and when a sheep leaves the flock, they go through the mud puddles and they go through the briars and the poison ivy and get exposed to all the vultures and the critters. And wherever that sheep goes, that shepherd's gonna have to follow and you're gonna have to track us through the mud holes and through the briars and through the thorns and the thistles and the vines. And I'm sorry, Lord, for the places where I've asked you to follow me through and to. But you came anyway, and you left the 99 safe in the church and went looking for me, hanging by my fingernails out on the edge of a cliff. I could have died, but you reached down and you grabbed me. I sent you on my life right now. I don't want you just on me, I want you in me. I won't want you just in me, I want you to fill me. I want you to fill me, Lord, so that my thought life is sanitized, so that words that come out of my mouth will be projected from a meditated heart, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. I apologize, Lord, for what I said to my wife, what I said to my husband, the way I've treated my children, the disrespect I brought to my parents, the way that I've shamed my church. I'm asking you, God, right now, amen. Forgive me, Lord, things that I've done that have brought just, 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 the Bible said you bring an abomination into your house and your whole house becomes an abomination. Oh, God, 
That man put that silver in his tent and that's why his family died. It wasn't what he did in the tabernacle that got him in trouble. It's what he hid in his tent. I don't want to hide stuff in my tent. I don't want things to be in my house, Lord, that shouldn't be there. I don't want things in my mind or on my mouth that shouldn't be there. I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to forgive me. I can say I didn't mean it, but I didn't mean it. I was mad. I was upset. I was carnal. And I was full of flesh. But I'm here today in your house. I've heard your word. I've been exposed to worship unto you. I feel your presence on my heart right now. I'm asking you, God, to hear my prayer and to wash away the iniquity out of my heart. I make a covenant around this altar today. I'm going to please you with my life. I am going to please you with my life. You're watching me points unknown. Amen. You can't be in this sanctuary right now. Pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the word that I've heard today. I thank you, God, for the conviction that's on my heart right now. But the problem with conviction is it's like the fire truck that shows up after the house is already on fire. I don't want just conviction to be in my life that's always reminding me of what I did wrong. I want that thing to be in my heart, Lord, that'll check me before I even do it. Before the fire even starts, I want that thing to be on my heart and in my spirit, God, that I'll know I can't do this and be right with God. I can't do this and please God. Lord Jesus, fill my house. Fill, Lord, heal my mind. Heal my heart. Heal my family. Oh, Jesus. Heal my finances, Lord. I will not be stingy. You've blessed me. I'm sorry I stuck it. I'm sorry that I spent it all. I wouldn't even have any of it if you wouldn't have given me the strength to be able to earn it. I make a covenant today that I'm going to be a man of integrity. I'm going to be a woman of discipline. I'm asking you, Lord, we are disciples. We're supposed to be disciples. I want to be a disciplined man and a disciplined woman. If you've never been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me give you a scripture. Why are you waiting? Why tarriest now? Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. We got water. And we're not talking river here. We're talking warm water. We got extra clothes for you to wear. We got a hair dryer to dry your hair. We'll even give you a brand new pair of socks. That's right. Well, we're a full service church, man. We're doing everything we can to make it as easy as possible. But I'll tell you what Peter said to Cornelius. He commanded them to be baptized. He said, you get in that water right now. Let's go. Let's get this sin dealt with today. Let's get that old nature dealt with today. In Jesus' name. Father, I've repented. And now I'm going to get buried in your name. I can do that. I can get baptized. I can't wash sin away. But I can agree to be baptized. And then I will agree, Lord, to live a life of faith, believing you're going to fill me with your spirit. I want you to so fill me that you literally bubble out of the last orifice in my head, that you bubble out of my mouth. Amen. And you magnify yourself in a language that I did not learn. I want you to display that power in my life. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Let's sing together. Sing hallelujah, Christ is
the joys and one of the difficulties of building a church. One of the joys is when people come. One of the difficulties is when they have to go. We've had a lot of people go through this church since I've been pastor. Some have left because they didn't agree with the doctrine. Some have left because they got upset of something. Others left because of job situations transferred. There are people in my mind right now that I can think of right now going over and over in my mind. I think of Gail and Steve Steimanoff, that I, I dearly, I will always love those people. I think of Michael Midget and his precious wife who just sent me a wonderful text in Florida. Todd and Etzko that are in Ohio. But there's a couple, Michael and, and uh, Stacy Scott, who stole our hearts years ago. Michael was so gifted at what he did. Mercedes took him, then Porsche took him. He's been a very valued asset to those car companies. He's made them a lot of money and they paid him in return. But he had a precious girl named Leah. Leah's not little anymore, she just got married. But between our services, Leah called and her mother-in-law had a heart attack and they said she's gonna die today if God doesn't intervene. And out of all the places she could have called, she called here. We're gonna pray for Leah's mother-in-law right now. Would you join in with me? Lord Jesus, I don't know this lady's name, but that doesn't matter. She's your daughter. This is my sister, but this is not my daughter. I got Ashley and I got Brittany. This is not my daughter. This woman belongs unto you. I'm humbled, Lord, that this girl who has been gone from this place for so many years thought so highly of the prayers of this church. And she would call and say, would you please pray for my husband's mother who's not gonna live through the balance of this day if God doesn't interrupt. Oh, Jesus. You said you can open up a door and when you do, nobody can shut it. You said you can close things and when you do, nobody can open it. I'm not a doctor and even if I was, all I could do is diagnose something, I couldn't fix it. I don't know what needs shut and I don't know what needs open, but you do. I'm praying to the God that does. If we need something to stop, you're Omega. You're the end. You're the last. If we need something to start, you're Alpha. You're the beginning. You're A. You're Genesis. Lord, some things need to start. Some things need to stop. Lord, I'm asking you to do a miracle. To do a miracle in the life of this woman. I believe that as we pray for this woman, you're going to heal people in this room here right now. You said you turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for somebody else. You gave us the example on the cross that instead of you worrying about the cuts on your back, the holes in your head, the nails in your arms, you said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. You told a man to take your mother away. You told Mary to go away with John. You worried about the men on your right and on your left. The last waking moments you had before you died. You were worried about somebody else. No wonder you're the savior of the world. No wonder the Holy Ghost was poured out very soon after that because it started with that attitude on the cross. I'm asking you, God, I'm not praying for my marriage. I'm not praying for my family. I'm praying for 
somebody else right now. And I believe in God that if I pray for them, He'll do something in my family. I believe He'll do something in my home. I believe if I'll pray as intense for them as I would for my own, you will honor that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Jim Foote was here in the first service today. His spine, his spine is in such trouble. He's one year this week, he's had surgery one year ago and they said, Mr. Foote, we'll know in one year what the rest of your life is gonna be like. But I don't want the rest of Jim's life to be like it is today. I want God to heal him. I want him to be able to play ball with his boys. I want him to go fishing with his boys. I want him to open Christmas presents with his boys and then play with those presents that he bought for him. Amen. I don't want that guy in pain. I want you to pray for a woman named Heaven Allen right now. Some of you know her, some of you don't, but that doesn't matter. But you can remember Heaven. She's got four kids. She's got a set of twins and two little kids. And she's dying of cancer right now. We need a miracle. We need a miracle in her life. <laughs> oh, Jesus. God of mercy. <laughs> By your stripes we are healed. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I'm asking you right now, Father, to do that which only you can do. I'm asking you for to interrupt and intervene. These kids need their mom. This man needs his wife. I'm asking you, Lord, right now to be merciful. I'm asking you, God, to do that which only you can do. There are people in this room right now, Lord, that are sick in their body. There are people watching this message right now, Lord, that are sick. I'm asking you, God, to heal them. Your word says, your word says that things would go out from Jerusalem and go out from the house of God. I'm asking for things to go out of this room right now, Lord. Time is no barrier to you. Distance is no barrier to you. You are the I am. You're the I am. You are right there, right now. I'm asking you, God, to do that, which only you can do. The one that straight forth the heavens alone, the almighty, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Let's thank him together. Let's make our request known with thanksgiving. Jesus, I didn't come here to beg. I'm not here with my hat in my hand. I'm not a panhandler. I'm boldly coming before your throne right now. Not with confidence in me, but confidence in you. If I could have bought it, I would have already done it. If I could have educated it, if we had litigated it. But we can't do this in court. We can't go to the bank. We can't. Our education ain't gonna fix this one, Lord. We need a miracle. We need a miracle. Hallelujah. Praying for Talisha, Lord, and for her ministry. I thank you for the countries that it's in. Now, God, I want you to do what did in the book of Acts. Ankles, knees, loins. A river that no one could pass over. You said there was 120. Then you said there was 3,000. Then you said... 5,000. Then you said a great company of priests believed 
And then the the count was lost. I can count the nations that it's in right now. I know some numbers about what's going on. I want us to lose the count. I want it to get bigger, Lord, than we can wrap our mind around. I want this thing to go in the highways and the byways. I'm asking you, Lord, for these precious people that were here. I'm asking you, Lord. I'm asking you to bless them. In Jesus' name we pray and call it done. Amen. God bless every one of you. Thank you so much for being here.